Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the public lecture that is hosted by the NYU Institute. My name is Daryl Fooney. I'm a professor of psychology here at NYU Abu Dhabi. It is my great honor to introduce our speaker, Professor Jeremy Wolf. Jeremy is a principal investigator at the Visual Attention Lab of Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is also a professor of ophthalmology and radiology at Harvard Medical School. And he's a senior lecturer in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT, among other affiliations. In our daily life, we have all experienced scenarios like difficulty finding a friend in a crowd or finding car keys in a cluttered room. Jeremy's research attempts to understand how we search for and find things in our environment. Or in other words, why do we struggle to find things that are around us? Jeremy is, I would say, the preeminent, uh, uh, preeminent expert on the study of visual search, with over 150 uh, peer-reviewed public papers that have been cited over 20,000 times. His influence, his influence extends beyond the science done in his lab. He has, um, he has tremendous contributions in many other aspects of the fields of psychology. Just to name a few recent activities, he's um, just finished chairing the governing board of the Psychonomic Society, um, and he's president of the Federation of Associations for Behavioral and Brain Sciences. He is the immediate past editor of the journal Attention Perception and Psychophysics, and is the founding editor of a new journal, Cognitive Research, Principles and Implications, or CREEPY. And Jeremy is more than just a stellar researcher, he is a remarkable individual to those lucky enough to know him. He has an energetic and charismatic personality, and his enthusiasm um, for teaching and, and training has led him to be a very popular professor among students. For those who are lucky enough to work in his lab, or to have him as a mentor, Jeremy provides great advice and training, as well as a sense of being part of a big family. In fact, his lab alumni include many of the prominent researchers in this area. I have been very fortunate to be able to work with Jeremy over the past couple of years. And so it is my special honor to be able to welcome Jeremy here. The title of his talk today is How We Find or Don't Find Things. So please join me to welcome Jeremy to NYU Abu Dhabi. Thank you, Daryl. I hope my mother gets to hear that eventually. That was, um, she'd, she'd like that. Um, I am honored and delighted to be here, and I'm honored and delighted that there are actually people who want to come and hear about this at 6.30 on a weekday. That's, uh, that's impressive. Um, so let me tell you something about uh, how we find things or how, under some circumstances, we do not find things. Um, first, 
my, my thank you to a variety of fine U.S. government agencies that at least to this point have uh, funded my, my research. Um, and that's the end of today's political commentary. Um, and uh, then let me give you a, a very a, a 30,000 foot level uh, description of what I'm planning to do today. I'll tell you a bit about um, why you have to search at all. Um, I will tell you something about why we miss things. And I'll tell you something about why we care and to uh, sort of advertise that in advance. That's a, uh, an x-ray of um, a bag at the airport. Um, those guys are doing a very important visual search task for a living. The radiologist at, uh, at your hospital is doing important visual search tasks for a living. They don't do them perfectly, and we'd like to help them be better. Oh, I should say one thing about that lovely introduction. It is true that I am a professor of both ophthalmology and radiology um, at Harvard Medical School, which sounds really awesome until you realize I don't actually know anything about either ophthalmology or radiology. <laughs> um, I'm by training an experimental psychologist. Um, my lab is part of the hospital. I work with both ophthalmology and radiology. And, and, um, but if, if, you know, afterwards, if you've got an eye, well, I can talk about your eyes, but, but you really don't want my medical advice. Um, all right, let's, let's start by talking a bit about why we, why we search. Um, many of you will have seen these sort of Where's Waldo uh, pictures. Uh, they do a really nice job of illustrating why it is that we, we need to search. If, if, if you didn't need to search, these things would be called There's Waldo, and he wouldn't make any money. Um, but, and, and you can be searching a lot here because Waldo is not in this particular picture. But if I ask you to find a lion, you can find the lion. And in the act of finding the lion, you will have sort of outlined a number of the problems that are important to try to figure out here. Uh, first of all, uh, well, you found it, right? It's not, not particularly hard not a particularly hard search task. But what was there before you found the lion? Clearly, it wasn't some sort of black or gray hole. There was something there beforehand. And that's what we could call pre-attentive vision. Before your attention got to the lion, there was something there. What kind of something was that? Now, if I ask you to uh, pay attention now to that pink minibus or whatever that thing is, um, you can move your attention over there. What happens to the lion? The lion was a, so you, you, you found it, it became a visual lion. Is it still a lion when you move your attention away? That's the problem of post-attentive vision. I'll say a little bit um, about that. But let's start with this problem of pre-attentive vision. There's a very nice description of pre-attentive vision in the work of the French philosopher Condillac back in the 18th century. He didn't know the word pre-attentive vision. That comes, that's 20th century stuff. But what he said, what he imagined was, you come to a chateau at night. These guys wrote better than we do. Um, and um, in the morning, your host flings open the curtains 
and Condillac asks, what's the first thing that you see? And he says, you only see little patches of color and shape you wouldn't know initially what you were looking at. And that, that's, that's really a claim about pre-attentive vision. Um, I didn't bring a chateau with me, but I brought curtains. So I will fling these curtains open briefly, and I want you to tell me what you see. So you ready? Fling. Okay, audience participation time. What did you see? X's, crosses, okay, whoop, some pluses. Vertical lines, yes. colors, okay, the colors, okay, you saw some colors, they were? Yellow, green, red, blue, yep, somebody said black, that's good too. Nobody says purple, there was no purple. Okay, so you're doing, and, and, and you saw some X's as well as pluses, so you got something about the orientation. You're doing just what Condiac said you would do, which is nice of you. Um, which plus did you see? Yeah, okay. So we've got one woman pointing to the right, we've got one woman pointing to the left, and then there's somebody up there going like this. Um, those are the three possibilities. Um, and the answer is you really don't know. Here's what you were looking at. It turns out the answer is that, that both kinds were in there. But the important point here is that you really don't know. And this is telling you, um, really in a nutshell, why you need to search. Because before attention gets onto an object, even though you're seeing something everywhere, that object is red and green and vertical and horizontal. But so is that object, also red, green, vertical and horizontal. And until you put attention on to the object, you don't know how the features go together. That's called feature binding and um, you know, without attention, those things are essentially, are essentially the same thing. We can, we can prove that. We'll do another search task here. I want you to look this time for the plus that has the red vertical and green horizontal bits. And I won't, this time I won't take the stimulus away. You just have to um, look and, and, and find that particular target. So ready, boom. All right, you feel pretty good because you found one. Now you kind of notice there are lots. <laughs> now you kind of notice that there, half of the display is made of those. Yeah, 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 and there's, there's, there's the, uh, the, the, the A student um, who noticed the, the, there's one on the left-hand side too, right? The important point here um, is that when that image came up, you immediately knew red and green pluses everywhere. But only once you started moving your attention around from item to item to item did you know um, what kind of plus it was. And that's what's going on in the world all the time. You've got visual stuff everywhere, and, but until you bind the features to the object, you don't really know the identity of, um, of that object. Uh, I wish I could claim that that was my brilliant discovery. Uh, the idea of binding is most associated with um, my senior colleague, Anne Treisman. That's why she's standing there next to him with the big medal around her. That's the U.S. Um, medal of Science. Um, 
which she won for a, a, a career worth of wonderful research, but uh, this, this idea of binding is central to the work that she did. Um, so the plus task is difficult because everything up there was red, green, vertical, and horizontal. Most of the time, that's not what's going on in the world. Most of the time, um, you can use that information that you get from everywhere in parallel across the whole scene. You can use that to, um, to guide your attention around and help you with this job of binding. So let's, here's a different task. Look for the thing that is red and vertical and the distracting objects up there will be red but not vertical and vertical but not red. All right, so here we can do more audience participation. Clap when you find the red vertical. You ready? Okay, yeah, now people are clapping a few times because there's a couple of extra ones. Good, that's lovely. The reason for doing the clap thing um, is that the way that uh, you do this sort of research in the lab is not to have people clap, but um, to measure how long it takes you to find um, the target or to confirm that it's not, not present. And you do that by pressing a key, say, on, on, on the computer keyboard. And we would measure that response time or reaction time as a function of how many uh, stimuli were up on the screen and the nature of the stimuli. And from that, we can infer quite a lot about um, how, you, how you do these sorts of um, search tasks. Um, now, the way we think you do this kind of a search task is um, basically you say, I'm looking for red vertical. Okay, brain, tell me where all the red stuff is. Tell me where all the vertical stuff is. And let's look at the intersection of those two sets. This is sort of sloppy, noisy information, but there are some places that seem sort of reddish and vertical-ish. And if I put my attention there, um, whoop, lo and behold, oh, look, some of them really are red verticals. Isn't that nice? That's the sort of thing that you're doing um, all the time when, oh, you're looking in a parking lot for your car, um, your car, for some reason, is bright pink. Um, and so you don't have to search randomly through every car in the lot. You just have to look at the bright pink ones to decide where, where yours is or the, you know, the, um, the, your, your child at school or something like that. You know, it, it's nice if you, if you don't have to search randomly for your, your child. You have some notion maybe of what clothes you put on him this morning, and you know, oh yeah, okay, that's mine. Um, it turns out that there's a very limited set of features like color and orientation in the last example that can be used in this way. It's not just any old thing that can be used to guide your attention. It's a very small vocabulary that works for what you can think of as the human search engine. Right. If I've got Google, I can type anything in there and Google will go find stuff. In the, in, in the equivalent box in your search engine, you can write things about, or if we go on the top line, the top, that's very weak, okay, on, on the top row there, you know, orientation, curvature, there's something about shape, some more complicated things like lighting direction, 
you'll notice that uh, there's one cube there that's lit from the bottom, and that, that kind of information can be used. And then there's a lot of things that can't be used. Um, most notably, I'll mention faces. We have little pieces of our brains that are very specifically built to do faces, but they want one face at a time. Um, you know, give me two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, I'll work on, on recognizing it, but I cannot look out at um, a whole sea of faces and immediately know that my mother is here. Um, if she is, it will be a big surprise to me, um, but uh, I can't immediately look out at the world and know if Daryl is still here, though it would be a big surprise if he wasn't. Um, so faces, the, 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 uh, faces don't seem to work terribly well. Lots of things don't work. There's about one to two dozen features that do work. And that's basically what you've got for, a, um, to, to, for things to put into your search box. Now, there's a bit more, there's an important piece more to how you search than just saying, oh, I'm looking for red things and vertical things. And we can illustrate that by getting you to, to look for golf balls. I didn't even check ahead of time. Is mini golf a thing in Abu Dhabi? Yeah, okay. Okay, excellent. So you're all mini golf experts. That's terrific. Look for golf balls. I created this particular demo um, because if you were looking for lung cancer in a lung, what you're looking for are uh, so-called lung nodules, which show up on x-ray as white round structures. Um, and so this is, this is my approximation for those of us who are not radiologists. All right, but you're looking for golf balls, right? And you have, let's see, you're feeling good because you found that one. And you feel better because you found that one, right? Um, but you, you, you didn't find those five. <laughs> um, and, and you also didn't find that one, even though if you look at that one, if you just cut that little piece out, that one is, is much more salient than the ones that you, you did find. Why didn't you find it? You didn't find it because your attention is guided not only by the features of the thing you're looking for, but also by the structure of the scene, what you understand about the scene. Most of the, the, in the demos I showed you before, there was no structure, nothing that's going to help you there. But if you're looking for golf balls, you know about golf balls. Golf balls belong on the golf course. They do not belong on uh, floating in the trees. That just doesn't happen. Now, if you happen to wander into a strange lecture where somebody has photoshopped the golf balls into the trees, you're going to get fooled. But most of the time, this will, do you, um, th th this will work for you. Um, though, I might show this, I can't remember if I got the slide in later, so I'll tell you now anyway. When you become a, an expert at, for instance, radiology, one of the things that you can track, uh, one, one of the things that you can see when we study the process of becoming an expert, is that experts learn where not to look. If you're an amateur radiologist, oh no, I do have that later. I'll show you in a little bit. Um, what, how, how we know that radiologists are learning where not to, uh, where not to look. Um, so uh, I'm going to skip that little bit, which is fascinating, but I'll skip it anyway. Um, so you're guiding your attention on the basis of what the thing looks like and what you understand um, about the scene. Well, I said that before attention arrives, 
um, uh, you haven't bound the objects together, so how can the scene be telling you anything? I mean, Condiac said it's just colored blobs or something like that. Well, he didn't quite have it entirely right, and I can demonstrate that um, with this, if it will run properly. What I want you here is more clapping time. Um, what I'm going to show you is a string of images in the same place, one after the other, very quickly. And I want you to clap when you see a chimpanzee. You ready? There we go. Apart from a couple, couple of people saw something. I don't know what that was. Um, but every, but, you know, it's, it's, so there are a couple of things that are interesting about this. Thing one is that you can do the task at all. Right, that, that's you know, a quarter of a second or so, no problem, you recognize a chimp. But what was, what's actually interesting for present purposes is that as each of those images came up, even though I hadn't told you what they would look like, you knew something that we could call the gist of that scene. It's a beach, it's a forest, it's a city street, right? And it appears that when that the Condiac was wrong, when you fling open that curtain, it's true that you would not know, was it this plus or that plus, and you wouldn't know how many spots were on that cow down in the meadow or whatever, but you would know something about the nature of the scene. You'd get some information about the structure and content of the scene, and we can call that the gist um, of the scene. And... That leads us to um, a, 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 a here, here's a quickie theory of what you're seeing right now and, and basically all the time. At any given moment, what you are seeing is the gist of the scene, some rough idea of the content of that scene. You are seeing or you are actively recognizing one object, maybe a very small number but probably just one object, and you have a theory. I haven't said anything about the theory part, but the theory is um, sort of what I would get. Um, and so right now I am seeing, I've got the gist of a room full of people. I'm attending to the gentleman in about the sixth row to check out whether I like that tie. It looks pretty good, right? So I'm attending to, I'm recognizing one object. Um, sorry, I just turned you into an object. Um, but, um, and worse yet, I bound you. That sounds even worse. But um, the theory part is, if I close my eyes, I still have an idea of what's out there. And you have that at any given moment, right? You've got, um, I, I am experiencing this sort of room stuff just everywhere. I've got the one or two objects I'm attending to, and I know the story that I've made up about... Um, about what I'm looking at. And I can demonstrate that with, um, with chickens, dancing chickens. That are, um, so the claim is, all right, the claim is that at any moment while you were looking at these chickens, you were seeing the gist, which is a bunch of chicken stuff up there. You were paying attention to one chicken and you had a theory like about why I shouldn't go into animation for a career. Um, but um, that makes an interesting prediction. The prediction is that um, if I 
destroyed one of those chickens without changing the gist. If I destroyed a chicken um, while you were paying attention to a different chicken, you wouldn't notice. So let's see, what are we going to guess? We're going to guess there's about 100 people here. There are 20 chickens up there. There are five or six people who saw the destroyed chicken. Where are you? Nobody saw a chicken fall apart? And, oh, there's one. Nobody, oh, two, two people saw it. Oh, okay, there, 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 there are shy people who saw the destroyed. And the rest of you are sitting there saying, what is he talking about? Um, and the answer is, you all saw this image twice, um, and you simply didn't notice. Right? You were, and it's not that you were, you, you were physically pointing your eyes in the wrong place. If you stare at the middle of that screen and pay attention to the correct chicken, there's no trouble telling that that's chicken well, that chicken is in trouble, um, you just weren't attending to the right chicken. And that's known as inattentional blindness. And it's happened. It, it, well, why isn't this a total disaster out in the real world? It's not a total disaster in the real world because most of the time, chickens don't fall apart. Um, and, you know, if... If one of you fell apart right now and managed to pull yourself back together before my attention got back to you, I wouldn't notice. But really, that doesn't happen much in the real world. So you can afford to um, get through the world in this way. And you could not afford to get through the world actively recognizing everything everywhere all at once. Um, one of my buddies on the computational side did a back-of-the-envelope calculation and figured out that that would require a brain larger than the size of the known universe, uh, which is not practical. And so you, you have to have these limitations, and they're really quite striking limitations when you get a, when you get a look at them. Um, and I'm going backwards, which is not a good direction to go. Um, all right, so... You're seeing the gist, you're seeing an object, you have a theory that will cause you to miss stuff if you happen to be attending in the wrong place at, 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 at any given moment. Why should we care about it? I already highlighted before the idea that there are um, airport security folks, radiologists, um, we can add um, uh, uh, image analysts for various fine security services that want to know, you know, what's going on down there. There are people who are doing socially important search tasks for a living, um, and they're not doing them perfectly. So let's take the example of um, screening for breast cancer, mammography. Um, in, the, uh, in, in, in North America, the miss rate, the, the cancers that are missed on screening um, are about 20 to 30 percent of the cancers are missed. So clearly there's a problem we'd, that it would be nice to work on. And we think that a very significant portion of those misses are not because the radiologist is lazy. It's not because the image is lousy. These are search errors. How do we know these are um, search errors? Or why do we think these are search errors? Well, the hint is in um, papers with titles like this that talk about retrospectively visible unreported breast cancer. What does that mean? Well, if you're in a uh, um, breast cancer screening program, um, you're going to get screened every year or two, depends on where in the world you happen to be. And um, if 
something is found in 2017, the first thing that the doctor is going to do is pull the images from 2016 because she really needs to know whether whatever this is has changed. Change, change would, would be clinically significant. Um, and what's really striking is that at high rates, um, when you look in 2016 and say, is that cancer, it's retrospectively visible. You can see it in the previous image, but it was unreported. Somehow, so it could have been reported, but it was not reported. How in the world can that happen? Well, the way to get a, 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 a feeling for that um, would be to, um, well, it's, it's the difference between saying, is there cancer anywhere here? Or is that spot cancer? Well, it doesn't make any difference for most. Anybody a radiologist here by, the, by any chance, by the way? Good, I can say anything I want. Um, the, uh, um, you know, obviously for us, that doesn't make a difference because we can't tell if there's cancer there, period. But if you're a trained radiologist, um, it, it, would be, it would be fine. Uh, it, it, you'd be able to tell once you pointed at it, yes, that's a cancer versus um, the case where um, you're just looking. Every, well, the, the, the equivalent here would be, I've been looking at you for um, a while. And if I closed my eyes and one of you asked me, you know, is there a, uh, a guy with a green shirt there, you know, here anywhere, I wouldn't necessarily know. But if you pointed at that person and said, is this a green shirt doctor? I'd say, yeah, of course it's a green shirt. That's, that's, that's the, the, the retrospectively visible um, Problem. So what do, we, what do we know about this kind of search? I pointed to this. This is, this is what I was alluding to earlier about what you learn when you become an expert. One of the things, of course, you learn is, oh, something that looks like this is cancer. Um, but um, here, what, what, what you're looking at, you see the outline of the lungs there. This is an old, old figure, not from my work. Um, and what the, the squiggles on top are a tracing of the eye movements of uh, of radiologists, from a beginning radiologist to an expert. And what you find over and over again, different kinds of expertise, is that you learn where not to look. It's not the only thing you learn as an expert, but you learn where not to look, where it's a waste of time. And you do this, well, that's what you did in the golf, golf ball example. Because you are mini-golf experts, you didn't look in the trees because that's not where the golf balls are. You didn't look in the sky because that's not, that's not where, the golf balls, um, uh, where the golf balls should be. And that's an important piece, and that's an important piece of guidance in um, what, what radiologists are, um, are doing, learning where not to look. Now let's talk about this idea of, of gist, right? That's the, the clap for the chimpanzee thing. Is there a gist of cancer? Um, why in the world would we think there was a gist of cancer? Well, when you hang out with experts, they start telling you stories. They love telling you stories. Um, and one of the things they say is that sometimes when that image comes up on the screen, I just know it's bad. I haven't found anything yet, but I just know it's bad. Well, you don't know quite what to make of an anecdote like that, but let's do an experiment. We can try to figure out whether that's a real thing. And here's what we're going to do. 
we're going to flash a, a mammogram sort of like this, boop, boop. And then we're going to say, um, well, doctor, would you bring that woman back for further examination? Give us a, a rating of, of, of how uh, likely you would be to call her back. We actually have to say that very carefully. When we said it like I just said it now, radiologists got mad at us. They said, I would never diagnose a woman after looking at an image for a quarter of a second. And we said, no, 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 we understand. It's an experiment. Just go with us here. Um, and uh, we, in this case, are the, the, the left two folks are two of my postdocs or were postdocs. They've now moved on. Carla Evans is really the person who deserves primary credit for this work. Um, Diane Georgian Smith and Robin Birdwell are um, the ra uh, radiologists at my hospital who worked on this very much with us. Um, now, here's how we're going to plot the data. Um, we're going to put on the x-axis um, the false alarm rate. You said there was cancer, but there wasn't. We're going to put on the y-axis the hit rate. You said there was cancer, and there was. Um, if you're just guessing, the data lie on that diagonal, right? You could, you could guess yes all the time, and then you'd be up in the upper right-hand corner. You could guess no all the time in the up lower left-hand corner. But basically, if you're guessing, the, late, the data would lie on that, uh, uh, on that line. And here's what the data really look like. Um, radiologists, given a brief flash, can um, uh, beat chance. They're, not, they're, they're right when they say they shouldn't diagnose in a quarter of a second. They do better if, they, if, if they're given more time. But um, they can get something in a quarter of a second. Well, maybe they just got lucky. Maybe it's just sometimes their eyes were pointed straight at the, the lesion and they saw it. So what we, ask, we also asked them, look, we know you're, this is, this is a weird situation, but here's an outline of the breast. Put a mark where you, if, if there was anything in this image, put a mark there. Um, just play along with us here. Um, the dotted line there is chance performance. The red dots are data. And you can see that in, for localizing the problem, they've got no idea. It's something about the look of the whole image that's giving them the idea that this is an abnormal case. Not perfectly, but they're getting, they're, um, they're getting an idea. Um, oh, that box up in the upper left, that's where you hang out if you're a, a, an expert doing the task properly. So perfect performance would be the upper left-hand corner. And you can see that um, if you have all the time you need, you do much better than a very brief flash. But the important thing here is the brief flash works. So somehow, the gist of cancer is getting through in, in uh, something is getting through in, in, a, in a fraction of a second. Now, if we knew what that signal was, that could be very valuable. Um, because you could get a computer to look for it, you could train radiologists to look for it more, uh, uh, more accurately. And so we are hunting for that signal at this point. This is very much ongoing research in my lab. One of the things we did was to ask um, where in the image, in, uh, in the information in the image, might that um, signal live. So one, you, you, we could blur the image, it's called low-pass filtering, um, or we could uh, 
look at just the fine detail, which is high-pass filtering, um, and, or we could show them the whole image again. So here's the whole image, basically repeating the same result. They do better than, um, better than chance. Each dotted line, by the way, is one radiologist. So you see everybody was doing better than chance. Um, here's the high pass, the fine details. There's definitely a signal there. In the blurred image, there's much less. So that gives us a hint that it's something about the fine details that's important here not so much the big blobs. Um, that's actually consistent um, with, uh, with another bit of information. We know the density of, of, of uh, a breast is a risk factor for cancer. It's a risk factor in two ways. One is that um, dense breasts are more likely to develop cancer, and the other is that dense breasts are more likely to hide cancer. But what we're looking at here turns out not to be density. This signal is uncorrelated. It's unrelated to, the, um, to, to breast density. Oop, that's why it says they're not correlated with breast density. Um, well, we were showing them two images. Radiologists will tell you that one of the hints that there's something going on is that the two breasts should be basically symmetrical. Maybe this was just a disruption in the symmetry somehow. Well, there's an easy way to look at that. Let's just show one breast at a time and see whether it still works. And um, so here's the results from looking at just one breast, and it still works. So symmetry is not the answer. But the really interesting um, part of this particular experiment was the result I just showed you was for showing the breast that has a problem. What happens if we show them the other breast, the, uh, the currently uninvolved breast? It turns out there's a signal there too. So even in a breast that where, where the cancer is in, on, on the other side, on the contralateral side, you can pick up a signal in the otherwise, um, otherwise normal breast. Um, and that's pretty interesting. My molecular biology friends tell, you know, who, who research breast cancer say, oh, you know, we're studying biomarkers, genetic markers of cancer, and, um, and I, you know, we've got one that appears in, uh, in both breasts. Maybe in some fashion that we don't understand, it's changing the visual appearance of the breast in a way that the uh, radiologists are becoming sensitive to. And that's, that's the latest news. That's, that's the, the newest stuff that we've got there that says that there's a signal even in the breast that doesn't have any, um, any overt cancer in it. Um, how, are we, how are we doing? I, I realized that my timer started like months ago. Um, we're fine. Okay. I'll tell you. A, 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 let, 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 me, let me tell you a, 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 a different story. Um, about where, where errors come from in, uh, in this sort of a realm. Um, all right, so you missed that, uh, uh, that chicken. Um, there's a very famous um, demo in uh, a very famous inattentional blindness, the original great, well, it's not really the original. There's a great inattentional blindness demo that involves this gorilla here. Um, here's what's going on. Um, you're uh, watching this weird ball game, 
where people are passing a ball around and you're told that your job is to um, keep track of how many times the white shirt team touches the ball. That's all you got to do. So you're counting away there. In the middle of this game, and you can, you can find this, by the way, on YouTube, which I'm just ruining it for you, but you can find it anyway. In the middle of the game, a woman, I happen to know she was a woman, in a gorilla suit, walks into the middle of the game, pounds on her chest, and wanders off. Okay, afterwards, you are asked how many times the white team touched the ball, and you say, you know, 14, and the experimenter says, good, see anything else? You know, there are people passing a ball. Um, did you happen to see a gorilla? And rather like the destroyed chicken thing, you say, what? And then, rather like the destroyed chicken thing, you replay the, um, the, the, the video, and of course you see the gorilla. You know, it's blazingly obvious. Now, I've just, so I've now shown you, I've shown you, um, with, uh, I've described the gorilla to you. I've shown you a version with my lovely chickens. If you go on, on, on the internet and say inattentional blindness to Google, there will be any number of other examples of this. And even though you've now been vastly educated on this subject, you'll fall for it. Um, you, you, and, and so that led to an interesting question about whether or not um, becoming an expert in a, you know, so look, I mean, you're not a gorilla expert, you're not a, 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 or a gay, you're not a chicken expert. If you were an expert, could you fall for, for this? Um, so we did an experiment with radiologists who were looking for that. So the, the golf balls, here, here's, here's a, a, a rather big, vivid lung nodule um, that you do not want to have in your, in your lung. And we were doing an experiment where we were asking radiologists to find um, nodules and we were tracking where their eyes were moving and it was all very interesting. This is in a lung CT where you have like 300 slices through the chest. The radiologist is scrolling back and forth through the lung and on the last case that we showed them, um, we kind of put a gorilla in the lung. And, um, and we basically played the same game. We, we, we said, uh, you know, how many nodules did you find? Okay, that's great. Uh, did you see anything unusual? No. Did you see a gorilla? What? How about this? Oh, that gorilla. Um, and, and in fact, 20 of our 24 radiologists missed it, which is exactly what we expected. We, saw, we, 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 we have no reason to suspect that when you become an expert, you build a, uh, a visual and cognitive system that somehow makes you exempt from the rules that apply to the rest of human vision. That was very, very unlikely, and it didn't happen. And, and it's very important to say something like that, that this is not that these were stupid radiologists um, or lazy radiologists. It's just that they're using the same search engine. Now, you might say, well, that's look really, really unfair. You told them to look for lung nodules, and, and, and gorillas like, don't show up that often in the lung. It's high, it, it may or may not be highly visible 
you know, here it is, by the way, extremely visible. We did all sorts of control experiments to show that anybody, even us, can find that gorilla if you're looking for it. But they weren't looking for it, and, 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 um, and they missed it. Why is this possibly interesting or relevant to real clinical practice? Um, if a radiologist in a clinical setting is looking for uh, lung cancer, that's their primary task, but they're always supposed to be on the lookout for so-called incidental findings. An incidental finding is anything else that um, uh, might be clinically relevant. And the big gorilla in your lung would be clinically relevant. Um, now, you might think that's a really unfair kind of task. Uh, in the US, you'd better do it because if you miss that incidental finding, somebody is going to sue you. It, it, it has really serious consequences. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a, a leading form of malpractice um, litigation in the United States, certainly, is uh, incidental findings that, get, um, that do not get reported. Um, so this kind of error uh, is important, and neither the medical system nor the legal system really understand um, that, look, it's really unfortunate that you, uh, well, it's not unfortunate that you missed the gorilla. That had no consequences. Um, but um, if you miss, there's a, we, we have a case in my hospital at the moment where the doctor was asked, does this woman have pneumonia? The answer was, no, she doesn't have pneumonia. It should have been, she doesn't have pneumonia, but she does have lung cancer. That's a $14 million settlement at the moment under appeal. Um, and I'm not quite sure where you want to come down on it, but the question of whether that's negligent, that's what gets, that, that's what gets you in trouble legally, whether that's negligent, um, is clearly related to this question of whether or, not you miss the, um, whether or not you miss the gorilla. So this has real possible implications out there in the world. One last story that I'll tell you. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, airport security. Um, so air, it's, this is a hard task too. And the poor guys at, airport, you know, at, the, at the checkpoint get much less um, respect, not to mention salary, than the ones who are doing this in, 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 uh, in radiology. But do you see a threat? Well, I don't know if, how they'd feel about that wrench, but, but uh, um, nah, there's nothing there. Clap when you find a threat. How about? Well, maybe. I, th I'd, I don't remember what. To, that's some sort of a hair clip, I think. There's actually nothing dangerous in there. Yeah, that, that, you should be clapping wildly now or, or not picking up a career in security. Um, that's... That's a knife, um, edge on. Um, when we've done experiments with these sort of this sort of imagery in the lab, we only use guns and knives um, because even though that's reasonably difficult, that's the stuff that novices can do. What you, what you learn, what's really hard to do when you go to um, uh, the airport screener school is bombs, um, improvised explosive devices, because what you're looking for is, uh, uh, well, the, the color code here is um, uh, giving you material. 
orange is an organic material, blue is metal, green is somewhere um, you know, in between in, in, in density. What you're looking for in bomb land is a hunk of orange that could be a plastic explosive big enough to blow a hole in a plane, um, and you're looking for a detonator. So what you're looking for um, is orange stuff typically interacting in a way that you don't like with blue stuff. Now think about the way you packed your last bag, right? Um, so, for instance, if you threw a glossy magazine in there, that turns out to look beautifully like sheet explosive in, um, in an x-ray. And then you just threw all that electronic garbage on top of it, right? You had 16 different connectors and an iPad and, and, and headphones, and, and that all gets squished into a two-dimensional image, and the poor guy at the airport's supposed to figure out um, what, what, uh, what you've got in there. Um, very, very difficult task. Um, performance is not perfect. Um, I can't tell you how imperfect it is because that's a secret. Um, and I promised I wouldn't, but it's not going to be a big surprise to anybody to discover that, it's, uh, that performance is not perfect. Now, one of the interesting characteristics of this task, and it's also a characteristic, for instance, of breast cancer screening, is that you're looking for something that's extremely rare. Right? So you don't want to go to the airport where um, you know, there's a threat on 50% of the bags. That's, that's not an airplane you want to get on. Um, in fact, the, the, the incidence of real threats is vanishingly small. I don't know how, um, uh, how the system is set up here, but in the U.S., um, the machine that, uh, takes, that takes those pictures has a stored library of threats in it, which it can superimpose on your bag as quality control, basically. And, um, and, and the reason you're not being jumped by security is that when the screener says, there's a gun there, the computer says, yeah, 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 I put it there. Now I'm going to take it out. Please run that bag back through. So when your bag goes back through a second time, Sometimes it's because they got a lousy picture for other reasons, but one of the reasons it goes back through is um, because at some uh, rate, they're putting false threats in the bag. I can't tell you that rate either. It's a secret, too. Um, the, I don't know a whole lot of secrets, but I'm really proud that I know a couple. Um, anyway, so does the fact that you're looking for something really rare matter? So here's the, here's the last experiment. Um, or last type of experiment I'll tell you about. Um, let's take 20 bags that have guns and knives in them, and we can either sort of do the equivalent of putting them in a stack of 40 bags, so that would be a prevalence or a target frequency of 50%, or we can take the same 20 threats and throw them in a stack of 1,000 bags. Um, and we can ask if that makes a difference. So here is... The, for these particular bags and my particular subjects, when it was 50% um, prevalent, they missed 20% of the threats. Here is my official government statement that they wanted me to put in that said, these are not airport security data that I'm showing you. If I was showing you real airport security data, no real error rates on that y-axis. <laughs> because it's a secret. Um, but Here's what happens. So that, that's, that's when the, the threats are common. 
when the threats are um, rare, you miss more than twice as many of them. The one-liner is, if you don't find it often, you often don't find it. Um, now, if you look at the false alarm rate, the rate at which you said there was something bad in the bag and there, and there was nothing there, that goes the other direction. Um, but, you know, ask yourself which error you're more concerned about. This is an error where your bag had to be opened and it, it was unnecessary. This is an error where you actually let a threat onto the airplane. Um, on the other hand, you don't want a lot of these errors either because then the line at checkpoint is too long and, and, and nobody gets on the airplane at all, and that's, that's not good either. But so you see that a simple manipulation of how common the target is changes people's behavior and, and makes, them, uh, makes them make uh, significantly higher error rates. Well, at least that happens in the lab. Would it ever happen in the real world? So we did a version of this back in breast cancer land. What we did was we took, we is very much Carla Evans here. Um, what we did was we took 100 cases, 50 with cancer, 50 without cancer. And we wanted to, so how are we going to do that at low prevalence? What we did was we slipped them into the workflow in the hospital very slowly. So it didn't change the actual prevalence um, of, uh, of, of their normal work flow. So less than one case a day for months, we were sliding these cases in. And then we also got some radiologists to read our 100 cases in, in a single stack. Um, so that's high prevalence. We've got low prevalence. We've got high prevalence. And the results look basically the same, right? At low prevalence, our radiologists missed about 12% of the cancers. At high prevalence, they missed over 30% of them. And those, that, that red bar is when they're doing their real job. The green bar is they're doing me a favor. The red bar is radiologists really working to save women's lives by finding cancer. So that's where they're presumably rather more motivated. And you can see that just by the fact that they're rare, you're missing it uh, twice as many of them. Again, the, other, the, the false alarms go somewhat the other direction, but it's the miss errors that we're, we're really worried about. Um, I won't describe this in detail except to say um, low prevalence, low prevalence, low prevalence, whoop, something changes at high prevalence. These are real airport screeners doing this experiment. It's basically making the same point without blowing any secrets. Right? You have no idea what that means, and that's deliberate. Um, you could, you, you, even if you had an idea what that meant, you couldn't go backwards and figure out the real error rate. Um, so the, um, uh, the point that I hope I've convinced you of is that not only is it interesting to study uh, visual search, um, but it, it has important real-world consequences, and that there's... Um, there, there's a good excuse for wanting to try to figure out, for instance, how we could bring down that low prevalence effect. What could we do that would make it more likely um, that, that, that the radiologist would find that cancer? Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website 
www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute